in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. To keep from becoming conceited because of these surpassing great revelations, there are given me... There was given me thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly with my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For then I am, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Please pray with me. Thank you, Lord, for this body of believers. Look out for our elders and our deacons and Pastor Aubrey as they lead us in this next year. Protect our servicemen and women and our first responders. Give us guidance and direction for our new year upon us. May we all cling to you in whatever 2020 brings us and give you praises when we prosper and praises as we face our trials. Thank you for loving us and for forgiving us when we stumble. Please heal the sick and let your will be done in all circumstances and give us peace in all situations. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We good? Yeah, it's good. Thank you, sir. It is good to be here. Obviously, you need to have in your mind Danny Ailey Wine. Uh, obviously, he's in the middle of his struggle with, uh, with cancer, and that's an ongoing. Obviously, you need to be in prayer for him. Larry Estes is home, which is really good. He's excited about that and recovering from quadruple bypass. And, uh, you know, obviously, continue to keep Melanie and Larry both in your prayers. Uh, and then our men's Bible studies will begin that first week in January. We have one at uh, JMF, uh, Mark uh, Stasny's on, is that Wednesday morning? At, uh, at 7 o'clock, 6 o'clock, that's right, 6. And then we have one at uh, MyCon, um, which is over off Prairie Rock. Uh, and we have that at Monday mornings on 7 o'clock, so you're welcome to those. And I know Paul has one on uh, Thursday evenings as well. So take advantage of those as we start the new year. Um, Open your Bibles to Galatians, Galatians, chapter 5, chapter 5, the book of Galatians, 
The Apostle Paul, and it's in, it, I like to die using that word joy this morning, uh, certainly appropriate for a message. Uh, the Apostle Paul, uh, beginning in verse 16, writes, uh, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. Uh, for these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. So, very graphic picture of this battle that takes place, the Spirit and the flesh. Um, and so, but if you are... Uh, for the flesh, such as desires against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh, uh, for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do uh, the things that you please. But if you're led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident which are, and these are the deeds of the flesh. Uh, they're common to us. They're common to all of humanity. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, Outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and, and things like these. There's that list. This is what our flesh desires. Um, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that uh, those who practice such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. If that's the practice of your life, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, here's that word, die, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, against such things, there's no law. There's no law. Uh, now, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified, crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. beginning in verse 4. Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 4. And he, he mentions in verse 1 that great statement, therefore now there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 7, he had this great statement about his own personal life where he would say, why do I do the very thing I don't want to do? The good that I would do, I find that I cannot do. I find that the principle of evil dwells within me, the one who wishes to do good. And there's a picture of that struggle between the spirit and the flesh. In fact, he would cry out, he'd say, oh, who can free me from this body of death? But thanks be to God through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Therefore now, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. So in verse 4, he says, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled on us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who, are, those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Their mind. That's where their mind is. All that list of the flesh. Uh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You cannot. You cannot inherit the kingdom of God, and you cannot please God. However, church, 
Christians, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And, and if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells in you. Now, go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Let me just say, um, the, Tammy and I this week, actually, uh, well, it had been the first week in December, uh, this was our first, as we started preaching here, this uh, marks three years that we've been here. We've been here three years now. Um, I had visited prior to that, uh, and I do, I do this rarely. I can count on one hand the, the times that I've done this in my ministry. Uh, I wouldn't expect you to remember the first sermon that I preached here, uh, but this is really, uh, it's not the same sermon, but it's based on the same principle. Um, as we finished our three years here and heading into a new year, uh, I thought, I've been thinking a great deal. Uh, really fervently uh, thinking a great deal about uh, certainly our lives in ministry, our lives as a church, my life as a pastor, my life as a Christian, uh, our work here, uh, and then the ministry that God has given to all of us. For, you know, for a, a pastor, it says the ministry of the word, uh, but I, I just think about our, our living life together. The Bible calls you and I family. Uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, the Bible's very clear about what God is, is doing, the work that he is doing, what he is accomplishing in our lives, what his desire to accomplish in our lives is. But then the Bible also uh, very clearly picture, determines, we just read two passages, uh, very clearly uh, gives us this word picture about our struggle. Our struggle. That Yes, we have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Bible says, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You go to Acts chapter 2, and the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches that first gospel sermon, and at the end, there were people that were pierced to the heart. God saved them. They heard the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified. They were pierced to the heart. And, and as they were saved, they said, well, what, what must we do? That is the earmark. That's the foundation. That is the place when, when God saves us, when we, through the preaching of his word, we come to the understanding and God reveals it to us through his spirit that we're, we're indeed lost, sinners separate from God with no hope except for the gift of a savior, his son. And our hearts are pierced. He saved us. And, and, and that saved person will always do this. That saved person will always say, what must I do? Now the Spirit is leading me. And he said, well, because I've saved you, what do you do? You repent. You live in a state of sorrow because of your sin, just like Paul, oh, wretched man that I am. You be united with him in baptism. The Bible says when we're baptized, we're clothed, we're united, we're buried, just like he was. Now we identify with him. It's a very simple thing. And as you're saved, you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But once again, now, the common struggle that we all have as a Christian, we're in this flesh. 
Jesus would say, the spirit is willing, the scripture would say, but the flesh is weak. And so if we're just honest, if you're really being honest, if you're thinking in really deeply about this in your own life, I think most of us would admit that we're just like Paul. We're just like him. Why did I do that? Why did I say that? Why did I, why did I do that? I don't want to do that. I want to do good stuff, the good that I would do. I can't find that I can do. Have you? I'm sure, I would just believe that in your Christianity, there's been a time in your life where you would say, why did I do that? I don't want to do that. I can't keep from doing that. And that's what Paul says. And so the, the, the reality is then, we're as Christians with the spirit of Christ that dwells within us, We're in this constant battle between the weak flesh and the willing spirit. And uh, so I I will tell you that of all the places in Scripture, there's so many for me, but the passage that we're going to visit here in just a moment is really the bedrock for me. It's the foundation. It's the launching point for me. It's the educational part. It's the guiding part, the learning part, the goal part for me as a Christian, pastor, husband, father, brother, just it is that place that I can always go back to and I can see a truth and the truth is something that it, it, it needs to be, it, it really has got to be that place in my life that I can go for instruction, guidance, Discipline, uh, a search, because, because it's true. If I ask you, if I ask you, um, tell me how does a person become spiritual, live spiritual, act spiritual, create spirituality, live through the Spirit, I know what I would hear because I've asked that question several hundred times uh, over the last many years of ministry. I want you to think about that as we go to this passage in 2 Chronicles 20. Uh, I'm going to read another passage. I'd like for you to go to 2 Chronicles 20, but I'm going to read a passage out of Deuteronomy 6. And you you can do both. In Deuteronomy 6, God leads the children of Israel out of slavery. And and he's, this is this lesson. They're going to be wandering in the desert for 40 years. They don't know that. They've been freed. And Moses, the teacher of the law, the law that was Paul talked about in Romans and Galatians, the, the Torah, the word of God, he says in verse 4 of chapter 6 of Deuteronomy, he says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. And you shall bind them as a sign on your hand. They shall be as a frontal on your forehead. And you shall write them on your doorpost of your house and on your gates. So that was his first. And when Jesus was asked years later, 1,500 years later, 
And the Pharisees, the teacher of the law, came to him and said, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus quoted this passage. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart emotionally, with all your mind intellectually, with all your strength physically, and with all your soul spiritually. You and I have four components. We have a spirit. We have a heart that's emotional. We have a mind that's intellectual. And we have a body that's physical. That's what we have. And the first command from God to the children of Israel, freed from slavery, saved, was love the Lord your God with all your heart, all, everything you have emotionally, everything you have physically, everything you have intellectually, and everything you have spiritually. So my question then is, okay, because this is true, and I remember the first time I went through this exercise over 20 years, and I've never forgotten. It's when, like I said, this passage that we're going to visit then, that's why it's so bedrock for me. Um, Every single one of you, there's not a person in here. You don't know a person. You couldn't name a person. And I'll and walk you through this test here. Uh, we're all feeding something more than the other. In other words, uh, of the four ways that God designed us, again, emotionally, intellectually, physically, and spiritually, all of us are feeding something more. We may be feeding our intellect the most. We may be feeding our flesh the most. We may be feeding our emotions the most. And we may be feeding our spiritual side, our spirit the most. Now, you can always determine which one is being fed the most very easily. You really can. Our goal should be to feed our spirit. It is. Now, we feed all four of those at some level. But our goal should be to feed my spirit, to grow my spirit, to strengthen my spirit that's at, 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 at war with my flesh. Now, I, I'm just going to ask you, walk me through this with me. So everybody here, you could name somebody, you could, who's a, you just think about them, that person is smart. That, when I think of somebody that's really smart, I think of that person. Just do that real quick. You don't have to say, who's the smartest person you know? I don't say, okay, who is the most emotional person you know? We all know somebody that's very emotional. That they're, they're, they're just very emotional. Who has the strongest physical presence you know? I always use when I would talk with the inmates in prison, I, I would talk about football coaches. And I would say, for instance, Tom Landry or, or Tony Dungy, very spiritual, known for their spirituality. John Gruden, his emotion. A Bill Parcells and Bill Carroll, their physical presence. A Bill Belichick for his intellect. So those are football coaches. You may not relate to that. But every one of you knows somebody in your life that has a strong... When you see them, it's just a very strong physical presence. Maybe good, maybe bad. But you can tell they're feeding their flesh, the physical part. Do you know people who have, who have bought into the whole intellectual? Man, I, it's the brain, it's the smarts, it's the intelligence, it's the cognitive... You know, that they've really, when I lived in Abilene, you have three private Christian universities there. And there were more preachers in every pulpit that have a PhD, 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 and the intellect. And we, we, here we are in College Station. There's a great emphasis on the intellect. Now, the problem with that is the intellect, the Scripture says, puffs up. Paul wrote to the Corinthians and says, the problem with the intellect is that it puffs up. It's true. It makes us arrogant. And it just does. It's very hard. The more, <laughs> the more we feed our intellect, it's very hard 
When you think of somebody who's really, really, really smart, we see a biblical truth there. Many times they struggle with uh, being puffed up. The problem of feeding our flesh, I have a dear friend of mine. He's the strongest guy I ever met in my life. You can Google him. His name's Ken Lane, L-A-I-N. He was the first guy in the world that's in competition to bench press 700 pounds. He's all over the Internet, Ken Lane. Uh, I met him 20 years ago. Um, he's got like a 58-inch, 60-inch chest, about a 38-inch weight. He's a short guy, about 5'11", massive chest, massive arm. He owns gyms, and he works out, uh, still works out three or four uh, hours a day. And when he walks in, he's got shocking white hair and dark. We used to call him the silverback. He's just a massive. You couldn't even see him. It's this great physical presence. And, and I asked him years ago, I said, why do you, I mean, you no longer compete. At that time, he was in his late 40s. Uh, I said, why do you, he said, well, I want to look good in my grave. And that's what he said. I want to look good in my, in my grave, you know, my coffin. So, it, but what, what he was saying is the truth. You could be the most, you could be a vegan. You could run marathons. You could, uh, you know, exercise the way you're supposed to. Drink plenty of water, all those good things. Eat your vegetables. Uh, the truth of the matter is, this body, this flesh, is destined for decay. It's, it is. It's temporary. Intellect puff, puffs up. Uh, the flesh is going to die. The flesh is really the source of, if not all, certainly most of our problems. And then emotions. Oh, emotions. Mm. The Bible says that above all else, the heart the emotions, and that was the Jews' expression for emotion. Above all else, the heart is more wicked than anything. Because our emotions lie to us. One of the greatest misnomers and unbiblical truths that the culture is might trust your gut. Oh, don't trust your gut. Oh, please don't. And it's become kind of a, there's some pride involved in that. Because you're saying, well, I've got some insight through my gut. And Satan loves that. He wants you to have that. But if your gut instinct is in objection to a truth that Scripture teaches, then it's wrong. It's wrong. Now, I could get very specific if you want to where that, because our emotions lie to us. And the Scripture very clearly, see, Jesus says, our emotions above all else, above all else, they lie to us. Satan, now if you read in Ephesians chapter 6, it says, our struggle's not a, it's not a physical struggle. It's a spiritual battle. If you go to 1 Peter, you'll read that Satan, he prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. If you're a Christian and you're in the spirit and you're struggling against your flesh, you have to admit that much of the struggle that you're encountering is a struggle with, you know, all the things of the flesh, my emotions, my intellect, okay, and my body, the desires of my flesh, are at war. And Satan is the tempter. He's the accuser. He's the, he's, that's what he is. But we've been told that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And we've been told, resist him and he'll flee. But there's the dilemma. So here's the reality. Although I have an intellect, I'm emotional, there is a spiritual side to the emotions. It says, with the heart we believe, but we're going to end with that. So, uh, that's in Romans. In chapter 5, we go to chapter 10 all the way, it talks about the role of the heart, our emotions, and our faith. 
But the goal for you and I should be spiritual growth. Three years now. here, So I've been able to measure. Where were we three years ago spiritually as a church? Now you can do this with anything. I use football coaches. You should first do this with yourself. You should be honest enough. The scripture says examine yourself. You should first say, so who is Aubrey feeding? Am I feeding more my intellect, my flesh, my emotions, or my spirit? Because we're going to feed all four. We just are. But which one is growing? Which one is being fed the most? Ask yourself. In marriage counseling, I'll go with a husband and wife, and this is the premise of that. You ask the husband and wife, so is your husband more spiritual, intellectual, uh, physical, or emotional? And then the question, and, there, and, and I would have to say 99% of the time, they're right. They are. The ones that we're married to would should be and say, yeah, that person is more spiritual. You know, maybe they're 70% spiritual, 50% physical. You know, obviously there's a range here. So ask yourself. But now you can do this with anything. You could do this with your work, the place you work. Is it a, is it a physical place, emotional place, an intellectual place, or a spiritual place? You could do it with a church. There are churches that, uh, you look at the Pharisees, but there are churches that have a great physical presence about them. There are churches that are very emotional. There are churches that uh, are very intellectual. And then the goal, the church you want to be at, is a spiritual church. And it doesn't take long. I did an assessment of this church three years ago. I've done an assessment recently as I assess myself. What is the character of that church? Is it more spiritual, physical, intellectual, or emotional? Leadership. Marriage. You can do it with a nation. When I was getting taught this at Abilene Christian University, uh, they had brought out a 20-year study uh, that, yeah, no, it was a 10-year study at that time, 1985 to 1995. And they said, America, what is America feeding? And they based it upon uh, gross, the, the actual net profit, net profit of the fastest growing industries in our country. And it was, it, it was, it was a, in a 10-year span. Now, there were others that may have amassed gross more money, but net and profit, the three fastest net profit growing industries in America, wasn't even close, was the food industry was number three, food. And I, I, I've seen that. Man, we just got more restaurants everywhere, on top, stacked everywhere. There's restaurants everywhere. Uh, the second was cosmetic surgery. Cosmetic surgery. The money that people would pay for cosmetic surgery, that growth in that 10-year span, was it was almost like a 500% growth. You know what number one was? Pornography. What is America as a country feeding? Our flesh. Japan feeds their intellect at that time. 11 uh, engineers for every attorney. In America, it was eight attorneys for every engineer at the same time. You can do it with the country. So here's my question then. If, if you believe what Scripture teaches about this, if you're 
concerned about where you're headed uh, as a Christian. What, what those passages we just read and the goal of those passages for you and I to look at them, examine them, and do a spiritual assessment. So the question is then, and I think we would all agree, that what we would want to do is feed our spirit. Out of everything that we're feeding, we want to feed our spirit. We want, we want our spirit to grow. My goal for myself, uh, this church, my marriage, is I want to see a spiritual growth. A spiritual growth. So here's the question. I've been doing this for 20 years. Nobody's ever given me, I've gotten the answer, I'd say, this answer, close to 100%. And it's the wrong answer. But I understand it. I would have answered it in the same way. So how do I grow my spirit? Well, here's the answer. I'm just going to do it for you. you. You'll go right. Well, uh, read your word. Read the Bible. Yep. Pray. That would be good. Pray. Worship God. Yeah. Go to church. Pray. Read my Bible. So I'm praying. I'm reading my Bible. I'm church going. And have fellowship with other like-minded people. Those are the top four answers. And they're the top 100% wrong answers. Do you know who the most praying, Bible-reading, Bible-knowing, church-attending, fellowship with no others but those like-minded people were? They were the people that killed Jesus Christ. They were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Churches are full of intellectual, physically motivated, and emotional people. Preachers are that way too, who under the guise of religion are feeding something, but it's not the Spirit, and it's based upon what they believe. Now, let me tell you something. When you're feeding your spirit, that's when worship matters to God. When you're feeding your spirit, that's when the word of God changes. Paul wrote to the Romans, spiritual things are spiritually known. So as you feed your spirit, you, you want to worship. You can't help but worship. These kids, we've been talking about gifts uh, the last two weeks, the kids. And I had asked Nicole to sing that song uh, a couple of weeks ago. She had to learn it. And she talked about the gift, this gift from God. And she shared that gift with us. You know, that, that you want that. If you're spiritual, you just clamor. You desire the worship. You don't have to go to worship because you think it's the right thing to do. You go because you can't do anything else. You read the word because you clamor for it. You ever been, and this was that great discussion that I had with Ken Lane. He said, you know, when you start working out and you start and you really get into that pattern of working out and then you, and then you quit, you just feel guilty, you know. But then after a while, you, you know, the pie is better than working out. But, but worship, as we're growing our spirit, you couldn't keep away from this building. It wouldn't be a choice or something that you think you should do. Reading your scripture, praying. Spiritual people don't pray out of obligation. Spiritual people pray out of a great spiritual hunger. So how do I feed my spirit? Second Chronicles 20. My favorite story in the whole Old Testament. You, I want you to leave here after year three with us and beginning a new year, ending this year. I, I just, this is, I love what you did, Di. I'm going to color this. I'm going to keep it on my desk. But these principles right here that we're going to read, these are life-changing. 
These are the great biblical truths that run Genesis through Revelation, and it's so beautifully done in this moment in the children of Israel's life. 2 Chronicles 20, beginning in verse 1. This would be a great gift for your children right here. Great gift for your marriage. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Munites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. There's only two, there's just Benjamin and Judah, the southern kingdoms left. Israel has already been taken captive. This, the days of David and Solomon are long gone. Judah's a very weak nation now. They shouldn't have been, but they were. So these people, the Ammonites, Munites, Moabites, they came to make war against Jehoshaphat. And then some came and reported Jehoshaphat saying, a great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea out of Aram. And behold, they're in Hazanon, Hazanon, that is in Gedi. And uh, Hazanon Tamar, that is in Gedi. And Jehoshaphat was afraid. You ever been afraid? I mean, really afraid. Where does it come from? It doesn't come from a spirit-led life. A spirit-led life says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, Philippians 4.13. A spirit-led life, Paul is a prisoner. He's a Roman prisoner. His life is at rest. He said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I go on living, I'll serve him. If I die, how much better? I'll, go, I'll just get to go be with him. A spirit-led life in fed life says be anxious for nothing. Be anxious for nothing. Because you know God cares for you. Sermon on the Mount. But he was afraid. Something was being fed in Judah, but it wasn't the Spirit of God. And Jehoshaphat was afraid and turned his attention to seek the Lord. And that's the only thing good about fear. That's really the only good thing about fear. It'll, it, it'll turn our attention to the Lord and, and proclaim to fast throughout all Judah. So we're going to get religious now. Let's get religious. Maybe we can do something religious and things will work out. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. Amen. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. They're afraid. Now they're looking for help. Now they're seeking the Lord. How many times have you done that in your life? But it's only temporary. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court, and he said, he prayed, he prayed. Everybody's going to church now. They're going to church now. They got an enemy bigger than them. They're scared now. They ain't going to the golf course now. They ain't going to the lake now. They're scared. prayed. He said, O Lord, the God of our fathers, art thou not God in the heavens, and art thou not ruler of all the kingdoms of the nations? Power and might are in thy hands, so that no one can stand against thee. Sounds a lot like the Lord's prayer, doesn't it? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And praising him in prayer. Didst thou not, O our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before thy people Israel, and give it to the descendants of Abraham, thy friend, forever? And they lived in it, and have built thee a sanctuary there, 
for the name's sake, should evil come upon us, the sword or judgment or pestilence or famine, we'll stand before this house and before thee, for thy name is in this house, and cry to thee in our distress, and thou will hear and deliver us. He's given God a history lesson. But we do that sometimes with our prayers. And now, behold, and now, God, and now. I guess we can't trust you, God. This is what he's saying. And now, behold, the sons of Ammon and Moab and, and, and Mount Seir, whom thou didst not let Israel invade when they came out of the land of Egypt. They parentheses, they turned aside from them and did not destroy them. Let me tell you what's wrong with all of our arguments about God. If you've ever de determined that you have an argument between God, your history is wrong. Their history was wrong. Oh, they were able to. They, they, did. they, they chose not to fulfill the commandment of God to go into that land that, and to utterly, utterly they didn't. But isn't that funny? We can change what the Bible says based upon our circumstances. He's doing it in a prayer. He is. Starts off pretty good, then shows the weakness of his flesh. And then, but listen to this. Behold how they're rewarding us by coming to drive us out of, from thy presence, which thou hast given us as an inheritance. Oh, woe is me. I'm so afraid and I'm scared. And God, I don't know if I can trust your word. After all, we couldn't do that. You ever prayed like that? Because I have. Here it is. This is the great biblical truth. The foundation of spiritual growth. Oh, our God, will thou not judge us? You ought to highlight this in your book. You ought to read this every week, maybe every day. Hmm. Oh, our God, will thou not judge us? For we're powerless against this great multitude for coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on him. And all Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. The biblical history is murky. They think that because they've been religious enough to worship and build a sanctuary, we built you a sanctuary, God. How, how could you? We built you a sanctuary. We couldn't do what you asked us to do. But they, I've been to places. I've done the same thing. Marriage is in trouble. Finances are weak. Family's falling apart. Children struggling with something. God, I, I, I've given you everything, man. I've read, I, I, I'm here. What do you, listen, I don't understand what's going on. I'm just, there's a lot of fear right now. What's going to happen here? I mean, I, I, I don't understand. I, and what I'm doing is dis, 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 discarding a mountain of Scripture that says to me, find it all joy, brethren, when you encounter various trials. Because God's doing something. But my flesh is weak. But in that moment, something happens. Verse 14. In that moment when he says we're powerless, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In the midst of all my weakness and my lack of biblical truth, in, in praising how obedient I am, a great biblical truth comes out. And then something happens. Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord. When did the Spirit show up? He's always there. 
Then in the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaniah, the son of Jael, the son of Mathaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, it's God's. Let me tell you how you feed your spirit, church. There's only one thing that God wants from you and I. And it's not the obedience that comes from your power, your intellect, your ability. He wants us to be powerless. Satan wants you to live in your power. We just read the passage. Corey read it right there. Second Corinthians said God gave Paul a messenger from Satan to buffet his flesh. He prayed three times, the great apostle Paul. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in your weakness. Satan wants you, wants me, wants a church, a marriage to live in their own power. I did this. I created this. I built this. I'm smart enough. I'm gifted, talented enough. I did this. You know, the three sins that are listed in Scripture, we did a great thing for our kids. It's the sin of our flesh. It's the sin of our eyes and desires. But the worst and most powerful sin that affects us is the sin of pride. And Satan tried to tempt Jesus on all three of those. He tried to appeal to his pride, his weakness, his eyes, his flesh. And he does the same thing with you and I, and our flesh is so willing. It's weak, weakly willing, willing weak. But it wants, you, when's the last thing? When do you really turn to God? When you've been stripped of your pride and all your power is gone. Dear Lord God Almighty, have mercy on me. That's when you feed your spirit. That's when the word of God becomes alive. That's when the prayer has meaning. Worship pours out of you. But boy, old Satan wants you to rule your flesh, wants to walk in your power. He wants you to live in stress. We, you know, the greatest moments of spiritual growth in my life, in a church's life, is when you just give it up. Not my problem. It's your battle, God. I'm not strong enough for this battle. I can't save my marriage. I can't fix my children. I can't pay the bills. I can't overcome the disease. But you can. You can. Spiritual principle number one. Just be powerless before God. How many of you are trying to control your marriage? Fix somebody. Control a church. God lets you operate in your power, ladies and gentlemen. Satan will encourage you to live in your power. Second thing, we don't know what to do. It's part of the power syndrome. We don't know what to do. The greatest spiritual growth I've ever experienced or seen experienced in a church or myself personally in ministry and life is when I come, when I, I don't know what to do, but he does. My favorite verse in the entire Bible is I presume to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. In that first chapter of Corinthians, First Corinthians, he said, the knowledge of man is foolishness to God. It's foolish. The message of the cross 
is foolish to men. Did you realize that? This is the message of the cross to intellectual men who puff themselves up with their intellect. Huh. Is foolishness to God. And the cross is foolish to men. It says the Gentiles think it's foolish, and the Jews, the religious people, they said it was a scandal. Do you believe that? That God's own people said the message of the cross was a scandal. That You mean a poor carpenter's boy from Bethlehem and Galilee became the son of God? Huh. He's going to die for our sins? And all of my obedience to the word of the God is not going to be enough? Now I'm going to challenge you. Everything that's going on in your life right now, your marriage, your children, your business, your life, start thinking about it in terms of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Husbands, you want to love your wife the way Christ loves the church? Instead of seeing your wife as a physical object of intimacy or a partner or whatever it is you want to believe or think about your wife, maybe it's in bitterness, think of her in terms of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Think of your work, your skills, your gifts, your abilities, raising your children. Raising your children, that precious gift from God. Think of that child in terms of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. As much as you love that child, as much as you cherish that child, as much as you adore that child, you have never and never will love your child as much as the Savior on the cross. You're limited to what you can do for your child. He's not. So, I'm powerless. I don't know what to do, but he does. And here's the final step in spiritual growth. But our eyes are in view. The Bible says the desires of the eyes cannot be fulfilled. You know what the problem with all these children here? All these children here? And all these children here? Go in a restaurant. Just see what people are looking at. How addictive is it? What are your eyes on? Are your eyes on pornography? Are your eyes on other people? What do, I don't know. I have to struggle with my own eyes. When Jesus talked about adultery, he said, adultery is not even a flesh thing. If you look at another woman with lust, you've committed adultery. Goes for women too. What are your eyes on? The spirit is willing, but the, weak, the flesh is weak. Now measure yourself. Are you operating in your power, your knowledge, and what if, but our eyes are on him? What if not only could you see yourself, your marriage, your business, your work, your career, your health, in light of Jesus Christ and crucified, and talk about Revealing your powerlessness because you and I have no power to save ourselves. But my mind is trained that way. And now my eyes. My eyes. Satan wants to control everything we look at on the basis of our intellect, our knowledge, and our power. One of my if you were to read in 2 Corinthians and Paul talks about his own life, he said, man, I've been shipwrecked. I've spent a night and day. He said, 
I've been stoned. I've been caned. I've been in dangers from countrymen, dangers from rivers, dangers from... I mean, all this list, he's been... Five times he received lashes, 39 lashes. I mean, you know what he concluded with? Above all else, above all else, above all. The, the, I've never been whipped with a cat of nine tails. Once versus five times 39 lashes. Nobody's caned me. Nobody's thrown me in prison for my faith. No, but my family hasn't turned on me for my faith. Nobody ridicules me in the community. I haven't been jailed for my faith. But you know what he says? He said, and above all else, there's my daily concern for the church. When Gandhi was asked what he thought about Jesus, he said, I don't, uh, I don't have a problem with your Jesus. It's that bloody thing he drags behind him called the church. If you go to Acts in chapter 6, you see in chapter 2 it says they had everything in common. Chapter 6, they're fighting over which widows are getting fed first. And if you read First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Jesus addressing First and Second Thessalonians, Jesus addressing the seven churches in Asia Minor, the church is a mess. It's a mess. The the goal of Jesus Christ as he gives you and I the gift of the Holy Spirit is for you and I to grow spiritually. And you and I will only grow spiritually as a church when we quit operating in my power, my pride. You want to fix your marriage? Quit operating in your, pride, your, your power. When this church or any church gives up their intellect and the only knowledge of anything that they would do is based upon Jesus Christ and crucified. And then when all of us, our eyes, are on him. Jesus' final words on the cross as he looked out at the crowd, this is the way he sees. This is what he sees. They've spit on him. They've beaten him. They've cursed him. They're mocking him. He could save others, but he can't save himself. His eyes, this is what his power said. This is what his intellect said, and this is what his eyes saw. Forgive them, Father. They don't know what they're doing. What a vision. What a mind. What a power. There was a Roman centurion, powerful man, strong enough to drive nails into the wrist of a convicted criminal, strong enough to lift a cross and watch it thump, smart enough to know what his duty was, and had seen a level of cruelty that most of us would never envision. And at that moment, he said, surely this man was a son of God. first time he saw power more powerful than any Caesar that had ever reigned for the first time his knowledge expanded to a level that he couldn't even understand and for the first time he had eyes 
looking at the sun. Let's pray. Father in heaven, my prayer, first, Father, I want to say thank you for allowing Tammy and I to serve here these three years. Thank you so much. I want to pray for myself as a pastor and for my wife and our marriage and this congregation, the mothers, the fathers, the wives, the children, the infants. I want to pray that as we move into a new year, Father, we finish this year, that our hearts are determined to be powerless and trust only in your power. That we will clear our minds and live in the area that I don't know what to do, Father, but I know you do. And then finally, Father, as the writer of Hebrews says, fix our eyes on your Son, who's the author and perfecter of our faith. That's why I pray that we walk in your power and your knowledge with your vision, so clearly seen on the cross of your Son. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.